Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi, your host from Oxford Brooks University. Today, I am with Dr. Weijan Shan to talk about his latest book. This is Money Games, the inside story of how American dealmakers saved Korea's most iconic bank. It is just out in October 2020 by Wiley. This is a 15 months saga, an incredible story with very important actors from the American government, the South Korean government, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and of course, the private equity investors for which uh, Dr. Shan used to work at the time. The time is uh, the peak of the Asian financial crisis. So we are in 1997, 1998. Um, Thank you very much for being with us and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. If I may start by making a correction, you said it was a 15 months saga. Well, that's not entirely correct. The book covers more than six years. So it is a story about a major private equity transaction during the height, as you mentioned, of the financial crisis. But it was a story not only about deal-making, acquisition by Newbridge Capital of what used to be the largest bank in Korea, but also about how we turn around and build and rebuild that bank and eventually exited at a very good profit. profit. And to my knowledge, this is the only book that covers the entire investment cycle for a major private equity transaction from the very beginning to the end. So it's it's more than 15 months. <laughs> yeah, this is years. an important yeah. correction because, in fact, you explain that uh, one of the intentions about writing this book is uh, to help uh, the non-experts to familiarize with the private capital business, which is usually described by non, by not by the actors, and it is describing just uh, a short period of time or just the uh, outcomes of the operations. And so this book is unique in exactly this, in handling the entire institutional context and uh, describing what was happening before and after. Yes, you're absolutely right. For example, there are a number of books on private equity. I think the most popular is probably Barbarians and the Gate, talking about KKR's acquisition of RJR Nabisco back in 1988. The book was written by some Wall Street Journal journalists. Very good book. But one year after the transaction was put together, So it deals only with the deal-making part of that particular transaction without regard to the fact 
and in fact couldn't see the fact that KKR stayed in that investment for 15 months. So it was a long investment, and there are other books in this regard as well. That is deal-making part, private equity transaction. Mine is the only one that talks about the entire investment cycle. Henry Kravis of KKR likes to say that any idiot can buy a business. It is what happens afterwards that really matters. So I think my book fills a void by talking about what happens after a, an investment is made. And your investment was very profitable, also in a very short time, in fact. But sorry, we forgot, I forgot to introduce you. And correct me again if I forget something. So you were born in China, and we'll go back to this point. You hold an MA and also a PhD from the University of California at Berkeley, and also an MBA from the University of San Francisco. You are now the CEO and the chairman of PhD, a very important private equity firm. And uh, uh, before this, uh, you worked for similar companies, but also you were at the World Bank for a short period, JP Morgan, and uh, you also had the teaching positions, first in the Chinese university where you studied, and then also at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, where you, by the way, you also founded the China Economic Review. And you frequently appear on important newspapers such as New York Times, Financial Times, and Wall Street Journal. Can I start, uh, Wei Zhang, if I didn't uh, forget anything about your bio- biography, about your previous book? About what book? Uh, your previous book, previous Out of book. the Gold. Right. I published last year a book entitled Autumn the Gobi, My Story of China and America. The book talks about my experiences working as a hard laborer in the Gobi Desert of China. Like many people, many of my peers in my generation, we went through a very painful period in the Chinese history called the Cultural Revolution, during which time we were deprived of our education. In fact, I was out of school. I never attended secondary school for 10 years. And uh, I, along with our peers, were sent to the Gobi Desert to work as a hard labor. So that book, Out of the Gobi, talks about our experiences in the Gobi working as a hard laborer and how I eventually came out of the Gobi and went to the United States. Same editor, published, uh, I think, in uh, 2019. It became a bestseller. And uh, to some extent, uh, this is the prequel of this book, or this book is the sequel of the other book because the last chapters describe your previous life before you move into private equity and eventually you move back to China. It is a beautiful uh, book about the tragedies of the Great Leap Forward and the following uh, great proletarian cultural revolution and all the consequences for you individually and for uh, your country, China. Um, so now let's go back to uh, Money Games, this, this book. Uh, can you tell us... The, the, the context, so what was happening in Asia and what was happening in South Korea, where this bank was based? 
the background of the story was the Asian financial crisis in 97-98. It was an extraordinary time. South Korea was developing very fast after the Korean War in the 1950s. I think 1953 was the end of the Korean War. And since then, South Korea was developing very rapidly. And then in 1997 and 98, the Asian financial crisis happened. It was the worst financial crisis in the history of South Korea since after the war. And just to put things into perspective, how bad the situation was at that time, in 1997, by December of that year, Korea's stock market had already dropped 49%. That is, half of its value was wiped out. But in dollar terms, the situation was even worse. Korean won, the currency, the local currency, dropped 65.9% against the U.S. dollar in that year. And the foreign exchange reserves of the country, and that is the foreign currency that it had in its position to pay foreign obligations, foreign debt, came down to $8.9 billion by the end of the year. Now, Korea was the largest economy in the world. It was the 10th, sorry, Korea was the 10th largest economy in the world at that time. It is still the 10th largest economy in the world today. And my firm, PAG, today manages $40 billion. So for the 10th largest economy of the world to have only $8.9 billion in foreign exchange reserves left to meet with these foreign obligations was indeed a very crisis situation. And Korea probably had money to pay its foreign debt. Maybe uh, in a few days, it will run out of money. So that was when IMF, International Monetary Fund, came in with the largest rescue package at the time, $58 billion, to save Korea from almost bankruptcy. And the package came with a condition, which is that Korea had to sell one of the failed and nationalized banks to foreign investors. And that's where we got into the situation. I was working at Newbridge Capital as a partner, and we were the only private equity firm to show up to try to buy what used to be the largest bank in Korea, which failed and nationalized by the government in 98. So that was the background of the story. Uh, two questions about this. Uh, um, at that point, uh, the International Monetary Fund arrives with some uh, requests, and uh, in particular structural reforms, but also the condition that you mentioned, which is uh, to allow uh, foreign banks to come in. And you have explained that uh, this was uh, because uh, there was um, a very poor credit culture in South Korea. The, the financial system was inefficient because of lack of modern 
um, credit culture. Uh, so obviously you consider this a good condition. What about the other requests? And after um, some decades, was the intervention of the International Monetary Fund appropriate, effective and positive? Uh, you're absolutely right. The, at the time, Korean's banking system, in fact, failed. About 150 banks went down in 97, 98, largely because many of its large customers, such as Daewoo Group, such as Kia Motors, such as Humble Steel, went bankrupt during the financial crisis. And those bankruptcies brought down the Korean banking system and failed a number of very large banks. And the reason that so many banks got into trouble was number one, Korea itself was over leveraged. That is too much debt. In 1998, when we started to negotiate to buy this, what used to be the largest bank in Korea, the average debt equity ratio in the corporate world in Korea was about 300%. The comparable number ratio in the United States was about 78%. So you see how indebted the entire Korean business world was at the time. For large tables, that is large conglomerates in Korea, which are called tables, like Samsung, like Hyundai, like Daewoo, the average debt equity ratio in 1998, it was about 500%. So that was why Korea developed, that is, with a lot of debt. But that was also the soft body of the Korean economy. When the crisis came, obviously, corporates were not able to pay back the debt, and therefore, they failed, and banks also failed. So looking at the situation, you would ask the question, why Korea was so leveraged and so much debt. And the answer had a lot to do with the government policy. Under the government policy, Korean banks banked with their customers not so much on the ability of the customer, the borrower, to pay back the loan but on government policy to support certain sectors. You know, today is auto industry, tomorrow is shipbuilding, and maybe the next day it's going to be textile. So government policy guided the lending decisions of banks. And then that's number one. Number two, on relationships. So if the banker has a good relationship with a particular borrower, they make lending. What is lacking is what we would call the credit culture. That is, looking at the ability of customers and borrowers to pay back the loan on a forward basis. So IMF and the World Bank figured if there was a lack of credit culture in Korea, it had to be imported. It had to be brought in by foreign investors. And that's why when IMF provided the $58 billion loan package, to Korea, the rescue package to Korea, the condition was that Korea had to sell two nationalized banks to foreign investors on the ground or in the belief that foreign investors would bring in the necessary credit culture. And it really worked out. 
uh, we turn around this bank, as I describe in the book, and then 10 years later, in the global financial crisis, as you remember, in 2008 and 2009, many American banks failed. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, AIG, the financial institution, the insurance group, and many European banks failed. But none of the Asian banks in 2008 failed. Why? Because they all learned a lesson from 97, 98 Asian financial crisis, they all recapitalized themselves, they all improved their risk management system, they all increased their reserve ratios. So come 2008, Asian banks, including Korean banks, were resilient and healthy, and they weathered that storm of 2008 intact with no problem at all. So that's how the banking reform actually worked out. So this is a successful story, not only for Korea. And uh, I asked you about the IMF because uh, many would remember the famous picture of the president of um, Indonesia and the head of uh, the IMF at the time, it was uh, Michel Kandesu. And that picture has been described as uh, in the posture, in the positions, in the attitude as uh, the IMF uh, abusing uh, its power on an head of state. Instead, after all, uh, the Korean case and other cases were very successful for the policies of the IMF. Anyway, now you mentioned uh, American banks that didn't learn um, the lessons of the Asian financial crisis. And uh, you have said that uh, at that time, buying uh, that Korean bank was uh, like uh, in 2008, buying... uh, um, Lehman Brothers a few days before the bankruptcy. So so desperate was the situation. And so how did you manage to persuade your investors to conclude the operations and how did you make it uh, uh, successful? It was different. It was not like buying Lehman Brothers in 2008. In fact, it was like buying American Savings Bank in 1988. See, America went through another banking crisis, and now many people don't remember, or not many people remember. And that was 1988 savings loan crisis. At that time, many savings loans, that is you know, a special kind of banking focused on mortgage lending, failed. And it's known in America as savings loan crisis. So many of these institutions failed. Some were sold by the government to private investors. American Savings Bank was one of the largest. So it was sold by the government to a group led by David Bonderman, who eventually founded TPG. And my firm, Newbridge Capital, was a franchise of TPG in Asia. In fact, we later changed the name to TPG Asia at the time. I left TPG Asia in 2010, but I worked for Newbridge and TPG Asia between 1998 and 2010. So during the savings loan crisis, the government sold the banks, also provided the so-called assistance, that is being responsible for the bad loans, for the legacy bad loans which helped or protected the investors from the legacy loans. Now, in 1998, 
in 99, when we acquired this large bank in Korea, the government adopted the same policy and provided similar protections to foreign investors so that we didn't have to worry so much about legacy loans, that is the bad loans from the past. We only had to worry about the new loans that the bank would make under our ownership. So that is the similarity between the American situation in 1988 and the Korean situation in 1998. For Lehman Brothers, if somebody wanted to buy it at that time without the government support, without the government guarantee that the legacy loans would be the responsibility of the government, nobody would touch it (laughs) because then you would just sink good money after the bad money and you would uh, go down with the same institution. I see, I see. Uh, By the way, um, I would like to ask you about um, a picture of the book. The book is beautiful also, not only in its writing, but also in the paper and in the pictures that you can find in it. It's a real pleasure to to read it. Uh, There is one picture of you. In fact, it's a picture, there are pictures of you during the meetings, uh, but also there is a picture of the facts that you have received during the negotiation. I think it was sent to the hotel where you stayed, and uh, it was your boss asking you to complete the the negotiation and not to go further, and so instructing you by means of the facts. It seems uh, like uh, something from uh, two centuries ago. And my question is, uh, now looking uh, back, how did you manage to survive without an iPhone, without the internet, without... uh, Uh, what we use today to monitor our uh, financial uh, transactions uh, and to communicate uh, and to exchange information. You're referring to a fax sent to me by my senior partner, David Bonderman, who was the brain of the transaction because I was new to private equity in 1998 when we first entered the negotiation with the Korean government. And David Bonderman led the transaction to acquire American Savings Bank, which I just mentioned, 10 years earlier. And therefore, the model we adopted to acquire this Korean bank was a similar model that David Bonderman developed to buy American Savings Bank. And the facts he sent to me was to ask me to stop negotiating further because we already spent too many months negotiating that transaction. And he was hoping that uh, by stopping negotiating, the government would uh, quickly agree to the deal already on the table. And I think it's very funny facts and people should read it. But he was the only person at the time was old-styled enough to use a fax to communicate with us. All of us used emails. So the reason that the book provides a lot of detail about that particular transaction is because I wrote memos, very often just one memo every day, sometimes more than one memo on a day. So I wrote detailed memos about the negotiations, about what was happening 
to David Bonderman and other partners of New British Capital. So I have a good record, a good file of all the facts, all the things that happened at that time. He was the only one using fax machines because he had not got into using emails. That would happen a few years later. Thank you. So, uh, you, one of the purpose of writing this book is to let people familiarize with the notion of private equity and the role in our economies that you describe as much bigger than people would expect. Uh, and also, it's a book about describing how private capital can be good also in terms of uh, public welfare, so saving, rescuing uh, what used to be a nationalized bank and in, in improving the financial market for the entire economy, for the entire country. So um, how successful uh, is this story in describing this positive role of private equity? Well, I hope that uh, the reader will draw a conclusion from the book by themselves. And uh, the significance of this particular transaction is not really how private equity investors made money out of that transaction. And of course, that's important for the investors or what we call limited partners of Newbridge Capital. The significance of that transaction is that it was part of the banking reform of the Korea's banking system. And it brought in, as I mentioned, a credit culture, a risk management system, and we eventually became the most healthy bank in Korea, measured by the bad loan ratio. You know, every bank has some bad loans every year. You make some provisions against it. And uh, in 1998, the bad loan ratio for Korean banks on average reached about 30%. Now, typically, capital is about 5% of the total assets of a bank. So if 30% of the loan book is bad, and then, of course, the bank became insolvent. And that's what happened in 98. And by the time we exited from that investment by selling to a major global bank, which I describe in the book, so I wouldn't get into details of it, the bad loan ratio of that bank came down to less than 1%, which is by international standard, very, very good. Of course, we were amply provisioned against the bad loans. So that was just an example of the extent to which Korean banking system restructured itself, reformed itself, brought down the bad loan ratio, and became healthy and resilient. That was the reason, as I mentioned, why 10 years forward in 2008, all the banks were very healthy and resilient when the global financial crisis hit. But this book is also about negotiation techniques. And uh, by the way, here in Europe, we are now at the final days of these uh, five years negotiation between the United Kingdom and the, the European Union. This book is about building trust and your ability to persuade 
your counterparts that uh, it was good for them to sell and to sell at that price. It was something good for them to, because they never sold a nationalized bank. There were some asymmetries of information, a lot of asymmetries of information, but you were able to open up some of your plans and to build trust uh, so that the deal, this very unique deal was successfully completed. So what can we learn from your book in terms of negotiation techniques that that are still important today. In any successful negotiation situation, in my experience, trust is the most important factor. You have to be able to build trust with the other side. And it takes time. It is a process. I think transparency is very important to build the trust because very often the other side doesn't know what your objectives are and why you demand certain conditions, certain terms, and maybe you're getting too good a deal and he's not getting as good a deal. So if there's no transparency between the two parties, then you basically have to guess each other's intentions. That makes the negotiation very difficult. But of course, like in the battle, you don't always reveal your battle plan to the other side, but to the extent possible, you should be transparent. And that's a lesson that we learned in our negotiation. Eventually, we came to the point, as I described in the book, Money Games, that we had to open our books, open our models to let the government negotiators see what guided our position, what guided the terms that we proposed to the other side. So that's number one. Some level of transparency goes a long way to build trust between the two parties. The second point is you really have to put yourself in the position, in the shoes of your counterpart, your counterparty on the other side of the table. You have to think from his perspective, his or her perspective, and his or her position. For example, at the time, we know and we knew the Korean government was in a very difficult position. They needed to do this deal, but they wanted the best deal that they could possibly get. See, the deal received a lot of public attention and press scrutiny. And that was because billions of dollars of taxpayers' money were spent to bail out this bank and some other banks. So naturally, there was a desire for the government to get as good a deal as possible, the best deal possible from the foreign investor. And there was a very strong interest on the part of the public to know that the government was doing its best job to get as good deal as possible. So we have to sympathize with the position taken by the government because they were responsible not only for the government, but for the public as a whole. Only by understanding their position could we offer terms that would be mutually beneficial. Eventually, we were able to do. You, know, you would think that in the negotiations, some people think it's zero-sum game. If you win, he loses. In fact, that's not the case. As I demonstrate in the book, there are certain ways that you can structure a deal 
that would be mutually beneficial. But uh, apart from this specific uh, transaction, what can we learn from the Asian financial crisis of 1997-1998 that still applies to the current financial crisis, the 2009, but also to some extent uh, the, the difficulties that we will see in the financial sector because of the pandemics in the following years? As I mentioned just now, because of the Asian financial crisis and all the measures, especially refractory and reforming measures of the banking system undertaken by Asian countries from Korea all the way to Indonesia in 1997-98, that when 2008 came along, the global financial crisis came along, Asia's banking system by and large was very healthy and resilient. So they weathered the 2008 global financial crisis with almost no problem at all. Now, if you look at American and European banks, in 2008, of course, they suffered terribly. And a number of them failed. But fast forward to this year, more than 10 years later, we are now in probably the worst financial crisis, economic crisis, since after the war. Even worse than 2008, because of the lockdowns you know, in the UK, of course, we are in the second wave of the virus, of the pandemic, and second wave of lockdowns. So the economy is taking a severe beating, is hit very severely. Many businesses are struggling, especially in the hospitality sector, airlines, hotels, entertainment, restaurants, and all that. And yet, none of the banks, to our knowledge, is in trouble. At least not any of the major banks is in trouble. In fact, banks today, either in the United States or in Europe, are earning record profits in a year of great economic distress. Why is that the case? Now imagine that the banks were not reformed in 2008. The banks were not recapitalized in 2008. And then the pandemic hit. Of course, the 2008 financial crisis would be even worse, right? The truth of the matter is that there was a significant banking reform in 2008 and 2009, so that today European and American banks are very well capitalized and their risk management system is very much improved. The reserve ratio is very much enhanced and compliance has also been increased. And therefore, came this crisis, all the banks are functioning very well. So I think with every financial crisis, with every banking crisis, you learn lessons, but you also build up your capital, your reserves, and of course, regulation has become tightened, and that would prevent the banking system from falling into another crisis the next time around. Thank you. By the way, this book, and also in particular the previous book, Out of the Gobi, is uh, books about the relationships between the West and Asia. 
the United States and China, in particular with your, with your previous book, more generally Asia and the West in this book. And so um, what can you hope for the future of West-Asia relationships from your experience? Well, in the past uh, 40 years that my two books cover, actually more than 40 years, of course, the relationship between Asia and the West has been mutually beneficial. Now, Asia, the odd number out is China. And 40 years ago, China was a centrally planned economy. But today, it's much more of a market economy. But 40 years ago, there was hardly any trade between China and Europe and between China and the United States. Today, China is the largest trading partner with Europe, that is the EU, and it is also the largest trading partner with the United States. So this relationship has evolved to such extent that there is much more economic integration and dependence between Asia and the West, between China and the West. And that is to the mutual benefits of the entire world. Thank you, Wen John. Uh, is there going to be a third book? <laughs> it's interesting you should ask me that question. Yes, I'm working on the third book, but I think I will have to wait for some time for the third book to be released because I released my first book last year and, uh, of course, the second book this year. Just a few weeks ago, I met with uh, a judge here in Hong Kong and he told me that uh, somebody gave a copy of my first book to him and before he was able to finish reading it, somebody gave him a copy of my second book. I think I shouldn't publish books so frequently. I should allow readers to have time to read through my books. But uh, yes, I'm working on the okay. third book. We look forward to read it uh, when it will be the right time to see it. For the time being, congratulations for your previous book, Out of the Gobi, published by Wiley in 2019. And for this book, Money Games, the inside story of how American dealmakers saved Korea's most iconic bank, published by Wiley in October 2020. Thank you very much to Dr. Wei Jian Shan for being with, with us. Thank you so very much for having me.